The less your business spends, the more margin you keep. But today, everything costs more. So smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one proven platform, helping you reduce IT costs, maintenance costs, and manual errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move to NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to netsuite.com slash earnings right now. netsuite.com slash earnings. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On Podcast. Catch us live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. It's not every day we sit down with a presidential candidate, and I'm glad to say that Asa Hutchinson is back with us. Of course, the former governor of Arkansas and Republican presidential candidate. Just, what, almost exactly a week, I guess it is, off the debate stage in Milwaukee. Thank you for coming back in. It's good to see you, sir. Well, it's good to be here, and you're right. Uh, what an incredible experience in Milwaukee on the debate stage. I bet. Very pleased with uh, uh, how uh, we got there, but also the message that we had. Mm -hmm. I think we showcased that I'm ready to be president of the United States. I'm going to ask you more about that, but I'd love your input uh, on the conversation we were just having. You know what it's like to run a state and to run a state that's dealing with a natural disaster. We remember the flooding in Arkansas in 2019, for instance, I realize uh, that's probably still uh, pretty near in, in your thoughts and your memory. We're watching Ron DeSantis, one of your rivals on the campaign trail, deal with this now in Florida, and apparently it's gonna become Brian Kemp's problem now, rolling into Georgia. The job of a governor in a time like this, this really defines urgency in that position, doesn't it? Well, it does, and there's nothing more important than, first of all, a governor has to be there during times of crisis. Mm -hmm. uh, secondly, you have to communicate effectively. People are looking to you for leadership, for guidance. Uh, they trust you. And then thirdly, it's a response capability, which is really managing and how you've been prepared for that all along. And so uh, this is what governors do. Uh, I had to do it as governor during a 500-year record flood. Uh, Governor DeSantis is going through it. Of course, they have the hurricanes down there on an uh, annual basis, and so they're very ready for this, pre very yeah. prepared. It's an opportunity, though, I suppose, to show leadership. Did he do the right thing by coming off the campaign trail? Oh, of course he did. Absolutely. There wasn't any question about that. You have to be there. Uh, and, again, you contrast that, uh, if I might, with President Biden. Hmm. Uh, he was delayed in going to Hawaii. I mean, the being there, taking the natural disasters very seriously. Uh, this is when people are hurting, hurting and uh, he did the right thing by going back to Florida. You thought that Joe Biden should have gone earlier to Hawaii. How would, he, how would you have handled that if you had been president? Well, first of all, your, your comments uh, to the nation immediately afterwards would be uh, very important, sympathetic, and, and uh, showing that you're on top of it and not a uh, more casual, no comment type. And then secondly, you've got to be there very quickly. Uh, you know, and I don't want to be overly critical, but it just illustrates that whether you're the president or whether you're a governor during times of crisis, uh, you have to be there. Uh, you have to help uh, comfort uh, and guide the recovery. There's something about governors and mayors, for that matter, as somebody who covers politics, 
governors and mayors have just a different reality than, for instance, members of Congress, the House, or the Senate, because you have to deal with reality, and you have to deal with everyone. Do you wish you had more of an opportunity to tell that story? You're not the only governor on the stage here that that makes you different from those who have never been an executive. Oh, absolutely. I, I think governors are in a uh, are set apart. They're uh, they know how to lead. They're held accountable. And I would like to have told more of what we've done in Arkansas, particularly in contrast to Governor DeSantis, who talked about. Uh, how they managed through the pandemic. I was waiting yeah. for the opportunity to talk about how we did it in Arkansas. And I think there will be another occasion at the uh, Reagan Library because I think those questions will come up again. Mm -hmm. But, you know, my record of cutting taxes, creating a surplus, creating jobs uh, in Arkansas, uh, and, and balancing a budget, they're very relevant to be President of the United States. Uh, the way I guided through the pandemic and making sure our businesses had an opportunity to survive, not sheltering in place uh, as many of the other states did, and keeping our schools open after those first couple months for in-classroom instructions. Uh, these are things that set my leadership apart. Uh, I look forward to the opportunity to talk about those more. Do you expect to be on the debate stage at the oh, Reagan Library? Oh, absolutely. You know, uh, I've surprised everybody every step of the way. Nobody thought I'd be on the first debate stage, and we made it, uh -huh. uh, thanks to a lot of support from uh, voters out there that wanted to make sure I was there. And now a lot of people don't think I'll be on the second debate stage. I will be there. I will be there because we have a growing level of support. My message continues to be important. Well, it's interesting when we talk about the message, what you just said about being governor. There are questions about whether that's resonating with Republicans today in a way that it might have 10 or 20 years ago, that it's about red meat, it's about conspiracies, it's about Trump. You saw Vivek Ramaswamy come flying off the stage because of some of the more outlandish things he said. This is someone with no electoral experience. Do you worry that you're talking to a different crowd now than you were earlier in your career? Well, if you want pure entertainment, there's others besides me well, to there support. Are. Yeah. And, uh, and, you know, I, I suppose it started to a certain extent with uh, Donald Trump that uh, came uh, out of the entertainment world mm -hmm. straight into the presidency of the United States. And now uh, the impression is that anybody can do that. Hmm. Uh, and, you know, you even think about Ronald Reagan. He was an actor, but he was also uh, a governor first. Right. And then he became president. Uh, George W. Bush, uh, you know, was governor, then became president. And so... Uh, I think they still have a high regard for governors. I think that does make a difference, but it's more than that. It's more than being a governor. They want to see somebody that will fight in Washington, mm -hmm. somebody that uh, will be aggressive in, in uh, making sure that uh, we tackle the administrative state, reduce regulatory burdens. And so that's on me to make sure I showcase my record, but also what I will do. There's another governor on that stage. Uh, who is known for going after Donald Trump, and that's Chris Christie. Is there room for both of you? Well, uh, I think so. I, you, whenever you look at eight candidates on that stage, and only two of us had a non-Trump message, and yes. I probably was even more clear when I uh, said I would not support somebody who uh, was convicted of a felony. At one point, you were the only candidate to not raise a hand. Chris Christie had a little confusion there. I think we know what he meant. But what does that tell us about that stage when only two of you would respond that way? 
Well, it tells you there's a fear factor as to offending Donald Trump, and yeah. if you're running against him, don't worry about it. Get over <laughs> it. Uh, that's what we're doing. Isn't that we're, why you're running against Exactly. Uh, and so uh, I'm surprised by that. But, you know, in reference to uh, Chris Christie, mm -hmm. you know, in some ways we're in the same lane. We all bring something different, uh, and we bring it in different ways. So it's what kind of leader do you want uh, for our country? And uh, I'll present my case. We'll see what the voters, how they respond to it. We're spending time with former governor Asa Hutchinson, of course, Republican presidential candidate. I'd like to ask you about the 14th Amendment, because you've been talking about this, and I'm compelled by this idea uh, that the president, in your former president in your eyes, may be unfit for office because of the legal challenges that he's facing now four times indicted. If it comes to it, will you sue invoking the 14th Amendment to get him out of this race? No, I don't expect that to happen. There will be plenty of others that will raise that issue. Yeah. So I don't need to, and I would not want to. But let, let me describe it this way. It's a constitutional requirement for eligibility. For example, right now you have to be 35 to run for president of the United States. Mm -hmm. A secretary of state will not put somebody on the ballot who's 34 or 33. They make that determination. Right. This is a constitutional requirement. They have to review as well and make a determination whether they violated the 14th Amendment. I suspect that there will be one or more secretaries of states that will make a determination that he is ineligible uh, because of the 14th Amendment, which says if you're a federal official, you can't, can't commit acts of insurrection uh, or you're disqualified from uh, being on the ballot. Mm -hmm. And if a Secretary of State says no, uh, he is eligible, then you can expect somebody to sue saying they were wrong uh, in making that determination, they're ineligible, and take it to court. And so the bottom line is this would be the Democrats' dream scenario that huh. we nominate somebody at the convention that will later be determined by the courts to be ineligible to hold office. Wow. Are you talking to your fellow candidates about this? Might there be... I don't want to say class action, but a cooperation in, in moving this issue forward? I, I don't think it's necessary. Uh, this is going to play out with the various Secretary of States and different citizens that want to uh, raise this issue in court. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, I made my case. I think it's important uh, for the public, Republican voters, to understand this risk, and it should be a factor in determining who's going to be our nominee. That's why I raised in the debate. I was the only one that talked about this. Yeah. And, you know, you talk about uh, he can't win in November, he can't bring in independence, but also you've got this issue of actually being disqualified under the 14th Amendment as another risk factor. Lastly, when, it talk, when we talk about winning over independence, is the issue the economy that will get that done, or is it something else? We talk about so much around here, but when we go back to it's the economy, stupid, is that actually what will decide this race? Well, the economy is the number one issue. It yeah. is, and, and independents, uh, voters trust Republicans to handle the economy more so than Democrats. And so uh, that's why it's going to be a key political issue. But also, when you ask about bringing in independents, it's yeah. more than just the economy. It's also who's going to listen, who's going to care, who's going to take us in a rational way into the future and lead our country. And so those are some intangible qualities that independents will look at as well, and they don't want a strident uh, extremist that, uh, is, that leads or somebody who's going to create chaos every day. Hmm. They want someone that will 
will stand for their values and represent them, but also set an example for young people and the kind of leadership we need in our country. Well, you know, we like to talk policy around here, and you're always welcome at the table. It's great to have you back, Governor. We'll be looking for you at the Reagan Library next month. We'll see you there. Thank you. Governor Asa Hutchinson, of course, Republican presidential candidate, in a conversation you won't hear anywhere else today. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. Osage County, Oklahoma, is getting a lot of attention right now. It's the setting of Martin Scorsese's latest film, Killers of the Flower Moon. The movie is based on a book about the 1920s Osage murders, when white men poured into Osage County and killed Osage people for their oil wealth. I'm Rachel Adams Heard, the host of In Trust, a podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartMedia. For over a year, I was reporting a different story about other ways white people got Osage land and wealth, and how a prominent ranching family in Osage County became one of the biggest landowners here. Their ranching empire was built on land that at the turn of the century was all owned by the Osage Nation. So how'd they get it? Listen to the award-winning podcast, In Trust, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On Podcast. Catch the program live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Pretty wild headlines coming from Ukraine. If you're looking at the terminal, you know what I'm talking about. Russia hit by drone wave as Kyiv battles biggest blitz in months. Ukraine getting $250 million more in arms from stock. That, of course, from the U.S. And then a wild card here today. According to the White House, Russia and North Korea working on an arms deal, something they describe as actively advancing. We have a lot to talk about with Kurt Volker. I'm delighted to say that he's with us now, the former U.S. Special Representative for Ukraine, former U.S. Ambassador to NATO, Mr. Ambassador Welcome back to Bloomberg. I'd like to dip into all of these uh, with you, but immediately the situation in Ukraine involving the counteroffensive, the narrative most recently has been that it's falling short of goals. Now we're seeing Ukraine reach deeper into Russia with what's described as the biggest drone wave that we have seen in months. How do you see the counteroffensive? How would you describe the stage that it's at now? Right. Well, first off, I think it's important to understand what the Ukrainians are trying to do. Because a lot of people expected Ukraine to break through these defensive lines and take a lot of territory very quickly. 
And so they were very disappointed as you go through July and August and they didn't get that far. But what the Ukrainians were trying to do uh, was to take out Russian logistical supply lines, the, the way that the Russians provide fuel and ammunition and food and transportation for their forces that are deployed. These are very long supply lines. And they've done a very good job at that. They've also been trying to protect their people as they try to clear minefields. And that's a painstaking and slow process. They're, they're not willing to throw people up as cannon fodder the way the Russians do. They're being much more methodical. So they're doing that. And then the third thing is they are making the Russian people and the Russian military aware that this is a real war. It's not this special military operation and denazification that Putin likes to tell the Russian people it's about. Uh, it is yeah. really a conflict with their neighboring country and they're sending drones to airfields, they're sending drones to Moscow. They knocked out uh, one of uh, Russia's naval ships uh, at the port of Novorossiysk. They hit an oil uh, uh, tanker as well, uh, disabling that vessel. So they're showing the Russians that um, they are not going away. And that is piling on to the political turmoil or churn that's going on inside Russia anyway. Were you concerned about the counteroffensive where we had reports that U.S. intelligence was growing skeptical that this would be a success, that it was, in fact, falling short of goals? And that has already begun to impact the debate over funding here in Washington. This is a capital that was already in the throes of debate, and Republicans don't want to back a loser here. It seems to be as simple as that, Kurt. How do you see it? Yeah. Well, you know, I, I just wrote a piece today. It's at CIPA.org. And it's basically saying that, remember, we declared independence July 4th of 1776. And in the winter of 1777-78, George Washington was in Valley Forge with a ragtag army, cold weather, and the British occupied Philadelphia and New York. So we can't look at the Ukrainians here 18 months after um, this conflict started and just write them off. Uh, they are determined. They are um, have an ironclad will. They have outside help the way that we did. And the Russians actually have very long supply lines and a very difficult time here. So I think it is way too early to write off the Ukrainians here. Whenever we see uh, Kiev move into Russia, though, it's answered by overwhelming strikes, cruise missiles into apartment buildings. We saw two people killed in what was the heaviest air assault on Kiev since spring. Ambassador, yeah. how worried are you that there's more of that in the near term? Well, there will be more of that. And the reason for that is important people will understand. The Russians can't take more territory. They can't advance. Their army is incapable of doing that. So they're doing what they can do, which is just throw bombs and missiles at cities and kill civilians. It's completely random. The Ukrainians have improved air defenses now, not perfect, but improved. So they're able to take down the, the majority of the drones and the missiles and things that are fired at them. But some do get mm -hmm. through. And the case today where these people were killed, I believe it was because of falling debris. So they actually took out the missile that was coming, but then the debris fell and killed a couple of people as it fell. There's a lot more to talk about here when it comes to funding. As I mentioned uh, a couple of moments ago, $250 million more in weapons from U.S. stockpiles. But there's a supplemental budget request uh, that's coming from this White House. Everybody knows that. We're talking about uh, a possible government shutdown as soon as the end of next month, Ambassador. 
how much of what's happening on the ground in Ukraine specifically, but I suppose Russia as well, will impact the outcome of that debate here? Yeah, um, I think if the Ukrainians have great success on the ground, um, that will obviously encourage people to go forward with it. But I think the votes are there regardless, uh, both in the Senate and the House. I think the votes are there to approve it. What I'm disappointed by is that the administration is not out there making a stronger case as to why this is in America's interest. Um, everyone looks at it as help for Ukraine. They don't look at it as it's in our interest to see that Russian imperialism and authoritarianism in Europe is defeated so that we don't actually have to end up defending some of our NATO allies. Um, giving the Ukrainians the weapons and letting them fight is a very pragmatic way to deal with it. And it's been very cost effective. Uh, it's been about three and a half percent of one year's defense budget. And we've seen we see one of our major adversaries now tearing itself apart. Uh, you know, with it shooting planes out of the sky over Moscow um, with Prigozhin on board. So uh, this is actually a pretty good bargain for the American people. And I wish the, the White House would be making that case. I also think that for both parties, for the Republicans and the Democrats, it would be smart to pass a big spending bill for Ukraine this year and get it out of the way. Uh, I don't think it's responsible or in anyone's interest to be debating this again and having multiple votes next year during the presidential election. Yeah, well, there's a lot there. I could only imagine your thought if you were watching or listening to the Republican presidential debate. Uh, I guess it was just about a week ago now. The, yeah. the number yep. of candidates on that stage suggesting that we need to not only take another look at this, but that we should not be supporting a war effort in Ukraine when there are people suffering here in the U.S. We're going to hear a lot more about this on the trail, aren't we? Yeah, we are. We are. And I think people have to you know, see through the, these false choices. Of course, we have to take care of the southern border. Of course, we have to take care of people in Maui. Uh, we're a big country, a big government. And mm -hmm. we always have to worry about our own national security and our foreign policy interests. And um, the biggest risk we would have is if we walked away from Ukraine and China learns a lesson from that, that we don't have the will to fight. We don't have the staying power to to stick with our pro-American friends in Europe and just side with Putin instead. Um, I think China would take a lesson from that and we'd find ourselves in a much worse situation. Viktor Orban uh, says the West should make a deal with Vladimir Putin. It's not the first time he's said that. A new deal on Ukraine's security architecture that should not include the return of Crimea or membership in NATO. Uh, that might sound predictable from Viktor Orban, but it brings us to the idea of a peace deal. Ambassador, you've actually sat down, as I've said earlier, with all of the players that we're talking about mm -hmm. here. We're talking about, in, in the case of Vladimir Putin, a leader who just had uh, Evgeny Prigozhin murdered for disagreeing with him and for challenging his authority. How do you cut a deal with someone like that? You can't. You can't. Vladimir Putin has been crystal clear that he will not cut a deal. He doesn't believe that Ukraine has a right to exist as a separate national identity, people, language, culture, or country. And he's been explicit that he's seeking to reconstitute the Russian Empire. Uh, he has compared himself to Peter the Great, Catherine the Great, says he's an accumulator of Russian lands. And to say that you're going to negotiate a deal with him is just nonsense, because he'll take whatever you give him, and then he'll just keep fighting anyway. Uh, so right. it actually has to be defeated. What do you make of this, this new too. talk me, about North also, Korea? 
Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, before we get to that, let me just also say about Orban's comment. We always have to remember, too, it's not our country. It's Ukraine. It's Ukrainian people's yeah. choice what to do. And like us, if someone invaded the United States, we would be fighting. And that's exactly what they're doing. They've been invaded. Their relatives, their friends, their territory, their families are under threat, and they are fighting back. Uh, no one can sit outside and say, oh, just give it away. As the White House likes to say, nothing for Ukraine without Ukraine. Uh, do you believe this idea that Vladimir Putin's warming up to the North Koreans to make an arms deal? What does that say about his relationship with China? Well, first off, what it says is that he's pretty desperate. Um, he mm. had, does not have enough weapons. Uh, he doesn't have enough ammunition. He is not able to get it from sources that he wanted to get it from. He's not able to build it better and, and build back quickly because of the sanctions. So he's scrounging. Uh, he's getting a drone deal with Iran. So Iran's going to build a drone factory in Russia, and he's buying the drones yeah. directly from Iran now. He wants to get ammunition, artillery, and things from uh, North Korea. Yeah, some of that may be coming from China as a sanctions avoidance thing or a, or a cutaway. But the fact is, China could have done a lot more to help Russia in this conflict, and they haven't done so. And I think mm -hmm. the, this talk about North Korea is really a demonstration that Putin's in a weak position. North Korea is not exactly in possession of cutting-edge technology, is it? <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't want to be using that. <laughs> um, I didn't think no, so. they're not. They, 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 they do have missile technology, and so they may be able to provide some chips or provide some things to help the Russians with that. They probably have large, large stockpiles of dumb artillery, and that's yeah. probably what the Russians are going for. I just wonder how much this is, uh, uh, in this case, John Kirby at the White House, telling us what they're hearing so it doesn't happen. We've seen that trend with the administration. Hey, we're hearing about uh, lethal weapons from China. Just get that out there. And it seems to blunt the impact and maybe even reverse course uh, of some of these deals in the process. Is that what's going on here? Yeah, I think I think that's a good observation, frankly, because I think the Chinese have been trying to play this very carefully. Um, they want to side with sovereignty and territorial integrity, not reward someone who's trying to break up a country because they view Taiwan as theirs and they want to make continue to make that claim. Their economic interests are much more tied to the U.S. and Europe than they are to Russia, and they can buy anything mm -hmm. from Russia that they actually want. And they even want to be part of Ukraine's reconstruction and, and to be um, you know, providing technology and infrastructure and linking them into China's Belt and Road Initiative. So China has a lot of interests that go against the grain here with Russia. And it has been nice to Russia. It likes the idea of weakening a Western-led global economic order, and they can instrumentalize Russia a little bit toward that goal. But they really haven't been aligned with Russia militarily. And calling them out on this uh, is probably a good idea because it will make them think twice about how, how visible do we want to be doing this. Yes, right. Absolutely. I've only got a minute left, Ambassador. Uh, what was your thought when you saw Vladimir Putin uh, accepting an invitation from President Xi to show up in Beijing, an actual visit to Beijing? Is, is the unlimited friendship about to find new heights? Uh, <laughs> it might have. It, I viewed it more as a summons. It's like, hmm. come see me and tell me what your plan is here. Wow. It's great to speak with you always.
Ambassador Kurt Volker, the former U.S. Special Representative for Ukraine. He was, of course, U.S. Ambassador to NATO, joining us from overseas. Thanks for staying up with us and providing your insights, Kurt Volker. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication, it's fortitude, and it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years, and it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. Osage County, Oklahoma, is getting a lot of attention right now. It's the setting of Martin Scorsese's latest film, Killers of the Flower Moon. The movie's based on a book about the 1920s Osage murders, when white men poured into Osage County and killed Osage people for their oil wealth. I'm Rachel Adams Heard, the host of In Trust, a podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartMedia. For over a year, I was reporting a different story, about other ways white people got Osage land and wealth, and how a prominent ranching family in Osage County became one of the biggest landowners here. Their ranching empire was built on land that at the turn of the century was all owned by the Osage Nation. So how'd they get it? Listen to the award-winning podcast In Trust on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On Podcast. Catch us live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. We consider the situation in Ukraine. Now, as we were discussing with Kurt Volker, the back and forth is really heating up between Ukraine and Russia. Ukraine attacking Russia inside of the country here. In fact, they, they hit a town that borders Estonia and Latvia. Noteworthy, as I read here on the terminal, as it's located about 500 miles north of Ukraine. We are stretching far beyond the borders of the country. It's home to an elite Russian paratroop unit, apparently targeted. And Kiev felt the blowback from Russia with the, the worst drone and missile attacks against the capital that we've seen since spring. Let's reassemble our panel today. Rick Davis and Jeannie Shanzano join Bloomberg Politics contributors Having heard from Kurt Volker, Rick, I wonder your thoughts today on a war, a counteroffensive that is now three months old and appears to be heating up all over again. Reaching into Russia is a controversial move. Will it actually garner more support for this effort or make life more difficult for President Zelensky? Look, I think that it goes without saying that the, the more active the Ukrainians are in pushing back Russia, either on the ground <clears throat> by getting them out of certain enclaves within Ukraine or putting pressure on them in their homeland, you know, through these drone attacks or other uh, attacks, uh, uh, including the occupied territories like Crimea, that helps the case in, in Washington. That helps the case in the House of Representatives that this isn't a quagmire and that uh, there's, there's still success 
uh, on the horizon and that uh, and that Ukraine can can still pull this out and 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 push Russia out of their territory. So, yeah, I mean, that mm -hmm. all of these things matter. And now we're getting to the point where some of these initiatives are being pushed both on the Ukraine side and the Russian side because they know that the winter's coming. And here we go all over again, our, our third winter in this fight. Um, and we're going to see probably um, people locking up certain territory and waiting out the winter. Jeannie, if we see Ukraine reaching beyond its borders like this, and some would suggest that's the only way that it will be able to win this war, what does that mean for support here in the U.S.? There's been great worry about creep. Republicans talk about this, who at least I should say House Republicans who oppose the war effort, as one of the things they're worried about, that this is what could involve American troops if it's gone too far. How do you see it? You know, I think that is a real concern. And anything that looks have like... with us? Let's take a swing at that, Rick. Yeah, um, I hear Jeannie. <laughs> uh, hey, Jeannie. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, I think hey, that... Hey, Jeannie, sorry, go, go ahead. ahead. I'm just not hearing you. Sorry, Joe. Hi, Rick. Um, no, you know, I, um, I was just saying that anything that looks like creep and anything that looks like stalemate is a bad sign for funding in Washington, D.C. And, you know, I think it's incumbent on us to think about what one of the leading contenders on that stage in Milwaukee was saying last week. Vivek Ramaswamy took, I think, one of the most radical, unorthodox positions from a Republican perspective I've ever heard in saying that we should appease Vladimir Putin. We should give him part of the Donbass. We should allow him to keep eastern Ukraine. And we should do that to woo him away from China. Um, and that he, Vivek Ramaswamy doesn't say things because he thinks them or because they make any sense. He says them because he's mm. pandering to the far right of this Republican base. And there's an audience for that. There's an audience there in the Republican Congress that is going to make funding of this increasingly difficult if there are any signs of creep or stalemate. And I agree so much with what the ambassador was saying to you about the need for the White House to make a case for this, that it's in American interest. But I would just add to that, it's even more important that case is made by the grown-ups in the Republican Party because the base of the Republican Party does not listen to Joe Biden. They could care less what he says. It needs to come from Republicans Republicans to make that case as well. This idea of uh, Vladimir Putin warming up to the North Koreans, Rick, Kurt Volker uh, probably said it best, the sign of desperation. But look, if North Korea does, in fact, begin providing munitions, even if it's old fashioned mortar rounds, I don't know what else they would have in store, maybe missile technology to the extent that the ambassador mentioned. This, this is a new front that we have to worry about here. Sure. Uh, they're just shopping for weapons. Same things they did in uh, in Iran when they were able to get Iranian drones sent uh, to Russia to attack the Ukrainians. Uh, I, for one, sure feel sorry for any Russian soldier who has to light that first mortar round coming out of uh, North Korea. I mean, you know, uh, I mean, I think you called it right. Let the buyer beware here. Caveat emptor um, might be the best gift that the uh, North Koreans could give to Ukraine in the war. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I mean, it's a it's a level of desperation. I mean, they are running, as uh, we know, they've overused the amount of equipment they've got. I mean, you think about how much it's stressed our stockpiles just shipping what we've done to Ukraine. And, and the Russian war machine has been hobbled by sanctions and uh, the inability to get materials, uh, uh, you know, as, as a result of those sanctions. So, 
look, um, <clears throat> I think that just means we got to start paying attention to North Korea again and start putting heat on both Russia and North Korea. I mean, honestly, I think we've kind of taken our foot off the accelerator when it comes to sanctions, secondary sanctions. Yeah. And, and, and I think this administration has got the tools to do it and support in Congress mm-hmm. to, to, to level those. Well, now that's a term, Jeannie, I have not heard in a while. Secondary sanctions. Is there a stomach for that in Washington if we're concerned about even funding the war effort? Yeah, I I do think there is a a stomach for it. I also think you need to make a case for it that people can understand, because that is what I think is really missing here. And it is that case that has not been made. You know, it wasn't just a few days ago. We had BRICS meeting and then inviting six new nations to join them. They are going to confront the West. It is in our interest not to you know, step away from and defy our allies like those people in the Ukraine who we have long stood with. And part of that is funding and making sure this is a successful effort over there. But you have to do that at home and you have to make that case here. And that is what is completely missing. And it's quite apart from the 24 campaign because people won't vote on it. Well, that's a great point And I guess question for you, Rick. To what extent will the war in Ukraine actually be a factor in this campaign? We, we saw the, the candidates weigh in on this uh, in what was a, a fairly policy-heavy debate uh, last week on, on the stage in Milwaukee. But once this comes down to two, are we really arguing about Ukraine? Maybe we are. You tell me. You know, it, <clears throat> the one guy we wanted to hear from was, uh, was uh, you know, President Trump. Uh, and he wasn't on the stage. Uh, I don't think it matters what uh, Ramaswamy thinks. I thought it helped Nikki Haley to make such an articulate um, uh, pitch for why it matters to support Ukraine. And, 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 and yet, you know, look, I mean, we have this divide in the Republican Party being driven by people who aren't even Republican. Look at the Tucker Carlson influence in last week. He takes Trump yeah. out of the debate and interviews him, which I'm still trying to figure out what that thing was. But let's say they ate up an hour of, you know, uh, uh, X time. Uh, to do it. And then he flies off to Viktor Orban, where he can run down liberal democracies, things like freedom, things like, you know, uh, uh, democracy, uh, and, 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 and talk about how uh, the Ukrainians just ought to throw it in. So, like, you know, I think that Republicans need to start getting straight, and so does Donald Trump, that, that if, if this country is going to be run by Tucker Carlson, we've got a much bigger problem than, than domestic politics. Not a shocker to see him sit down with Viktor Orban. I guess they're pals, Jeannie. I I wasn't going to go there with you, but Rick brought it up here. Viktor Orban says the West should make a deal with Vladimir Putin. I don't know if that's the news or if maybe he's preparing his speech for CPAC next year. Yeah, and and Tucker Carlson is also trying to get Putin um, on the screen with him. Yeah, right. We'll see if that occurs. Listen, you know that would be quite the bromance, wouldn't it? Oh, I yeah, it it really would. Maybe they can go shirtless together and fight bears. I don't know. Um, But you know, here's (laughs) here's the thing: is that this the Republican Party, from a foreign policy perspective, we are seeing such a divide there, and the people who are pulling in the numbers at this point. Is this new, really radical, right-wing populist idea? And so while I, too, wish that Vivek Ramaswamy and, quite frankly, Donald Trump stands on these issues didn't matter, they matter to the base that will decide the nominee of the party. The George Bush conservative wing old style seems to be gone. I mean, Chris Christie, Mike Pence, they're up there. I thought Nikki Haley did a brilliant job. But it is not resonating with the base, and they're running in the 
primary right now, not the general election. And this is a problem, mm-hmm. not just for this party, but for the entire country. And the leaders of the party need to step up and set this straight. But it has not happened yet. Rick Davis and Jeannie Shanzano. You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On podcast. Catch the program live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. We have the voice of Brock Longs, now the executive chairman of Haggerty Consulting, but he was not that long ago the administrator of FEMA, the federal emergency management agency that is in the throes of dealing with this storm and the situation in Hawaii and what will likely be a very large supplemental funding request. Brock Long, welcome back to Bloomberg. It's good to have you. Do you agree with uh, with Brian's take here? This could have been a lot worse for Florida. Uh, well, I think the worst case scenario would have been a, would have been this if this event had gone into Tampa and Pinellas County. Um, you know, I think that uh, the citizens living in and around that area should be very aware that they got missed by the storm. It went in pretty far to the north, but they still got four to six feet of storm surge. So imagine what would happen if it was a direct hit. But the the, the most important thing is this storm is definitely not over. And Adelia is a, is a reminder that not all storms are coastal events. Uh, while we're worried about storm surge and storm surge has the highest potential to kill the most amount of people and cause the most amount of damage, this system is trucking through at 20 miles an hour through South South South, south Georgia headed up towards South Carolina and North Carolina. And with that, anybody that is living near where the center of circulation is going to pass is, is going to experience hurricane force winds. And I worry about uh, the construction standards of some of the homes in some of these South, um, like South Georgia, South Carolina, and some of these areas, they're going to see a tremendous damage inland. And uh, it's definitely not over. This is going to be a pretty sizable event for FEMA. So we're not out of the woods yet, literally, uh, as this heads inland to Georgia. The other problem, I'm sure, Brock, is that these people were not told to evacuate like those on the coast were were warned repeatedly by officials in Florida. Yeah, so the main reason that we issue evacuations in the emergency management arena is, again, for storm surge, uh, right? So mm-hmm. um, while storms are classified by wind intensity, the storm surge, again, has the highest potential to cause the most amount of deaths. And in this case, 16 feet of storm surge coming into the Florida panhandle. And that doesn't include another three to six feet of breaking waves on top, uh, obviously swallows people up. And I've always said the storm surge is the unforgivable hazard associated with hurricanes. Very few people live to tell about what their experience was like going through through uh, through storm surge. When it moves inland, you know, the goal is if you're not in a if you're not in a facility that can withstand hurricane force winds, then you don't have to go very far, uh, but you can shelter in place in other uh, other other homes or other facilities that may be opened by uh, local officials that can withstand the winds that are built to a higher standard. Florida's done a great job with building codes. Other states, um, you know, could step up their standards, you know, to to uh, make sure that in the future we reduce the impacts of these things. But that's what we're looking at right now. A lot of folks have been watching Governor Ron DeSantis closely. He's no stranger uh, to storms, uh, remembering, I believe it was uh, Ida last year that we saw him deal with. But he's come off the campaign trail to manage it. Is that necessary uh, for the governor of a state to make that effort? Does he actually need to be there or, or could he have orchestrated this from somewhere else? No, absolutely. Uh, governors, uh, you know, 
All disasters are locally executed, state managed, and federally supported. So it's not FEMA's disaster. FEMA's, you know, while it's looked at as 911, it really isn't. Um, FEMA is designed to support a governor's actions when it comes to events like this. You know, FEMA, again, is there to fill up, you know, to, to help state uh, governments overcome any gaps or to support major missions like search and rescue and debris removal, those types of things. Um, but the governor being there and taking charge is exactly what the governor should, any governor should be doing and uh, putting forth their command and control. They are the chief executive for their state when lives are in danger and when lives are going to be, you know, altered as a result of this, they need to be, you know, front and center. And that's what, that's what you're seeing. I guess we're going to add Brian Kemp uh, to that list as well, if he's dealing with some damage in Georgia. Brock Long, there's a big conversation about funding here in Washington. I'm sure you're well aware of it. The Biden administration will likely have to make a pretty major request for supplemental funding uh, to handle what's happened in Hawaii, of course, now in Florida and the southeast and what might come next. The line that we've been hearing is just, you know, one hurricane could make the difference. And we've had a couple of events here. Does this look like the right amount that FEMA needs in terms of resources that that's coming from the White House? Regardless of this current hurricane, FEMA needs the funding. And um, what I, you know, most citizens have no idea how busy FEMA is from day to day. And uh, right now, uh, FEMA has 23 joint field offices uh, spread across this country. Some are physical, some are virtual, but they're working over 75 different uh, disaster declaration requests that are currently open across. It's not just Maui. It's not just uh, this this current hurricane. 75 different. Um, disasters are going to be impacted by the lack of recovery dollars. And what FEMA has to do with the disaster relief fund is they have to estimate by each quarter, fiscal quarter, they have to estimate how much money is likely going to go out and be obligated on behalf of local communities and state governments to help them you know, affect the long-term recovery, which takes years. And if I and if I read the disaster, you know, the, the disaster relief funding report that they put out most recently, they estimated over $2 billion was going to be needed to, you know, administer the recover, to, the, to the recovery needs at these local levels. And that was before Maui, the Maui wildfires and this new hurricane. So Congress has got to step up. They need to pass a clean supplemental and get the funding to Deanne Criswell, the administrator of FEMA, and give her all the tools she needs in her toolbox that are necessary to handle not just this event, but all the events. I'm sure you worry about ideas of this getting bogged down and it could the white house needs money for a lot of things the government has to be funded you've got a war in ukraine uh is this something that should be handled as a standalone issue or you worry that it gets bogged down into a lot of other things i know you're not a political analyst brock i don't want to make you one but you do know the resources that fema needs well i've always thought that the uh you know the the future of fema should be one that's politically neutral it should not be a political animal by any means or be brought into politics i mean we're talking about people's lives and and the viability of communities before during and after disasters so i would i would hope that we could uh find another way to work out other issues whether it's ukraine or other funding that, that that's on the periphery of this drf funding get the money in the coffers and um you know, help help FEMA out because what happens is is that FEMA's had to move to immediate needs funding, which means that the only money going out FEMA's doors right now is dedicated to life safety and life sustaining missions. So all of the communities over the past couple of years that have been through, you know, 
disasters like Hurricane Michael, Hurricane Ian, Hurricane Irma, um, yeah. you know, all of these other hurricanes that have occurred in Florida, for example, the long-term recovery dollars come to a screeching halt and it backs up projects, you know, major infrastructure projects or, um, you know, different things that need to be done uh, to help a community fully recover or become more resilient for the next event. And that's what's going on here. So uh, again, I, I mean, I think it's got to be a clean, clean supplemental, get it done, get Deanne the money she needs, but there does need to be a greater conversation about the future of emergency management and the way that we do disaster declarations. I don't believe that the current system incentivizes proper land use planning, states that implement stronger building codes or properly ensure their, their public infrastructure, which we all uh, depend on. We haven't talked about California in some time. It was what, a week, two weeks ago, we, we were looking at historic flooding in Palm Springs. Brock, there's an element of this story, and not a lot of people want to talk about it, not everybody does at least, involving climate change. And I wonder your thoughts on this. If this is going to become more severe in areas not used to this type of weather every year as we go forward. Yeah, so so there's a couple things that are taking place here. I mean, you know, I believe in a climate in a, in a changing climate. I also believe in climate variabilities. There are different cycles that impact the severity of disasters or the frequency of disasters, such as thermal haline circulation or El Nino or La Nina. And um, you know, it's a it's a changing climate coupled with climate variability, coupled with we got a lot of people living in vulnerable areas and um, you know, with a lack of building codes, a lack of land use planning. And so it's uh, it's a culmination of many factors that is playing a part here as to why disasters are getting worse. And uh, for any citizen in the United States, you know, the last place you need to cut back on expenses is insuring your homes. And uh, insurance is the first line of defense. And I know that there's a big debate there, you know, with insurance companies pulling out of certain parts of California or Florida. But Congress yes. is going to have to work with the private sector to be able to understand how you keep these insurance industry there. But it's also there's work that's got to be done by our legislators to increase the the, the performance capability of our communities. Uh, and until that happens, strap your seatbelt on, continue to see these disasters get worse and worse every year. How much do you worry about what you just referred to it state farm and all state both pulling out of a place like california what's a homeowner supposed to do uh i i do worry about the vulnerability that uh many homeowners are facing and uh repetitive loss areas and different things people that can't get they can't get insurance because again it is their first line of defense and when you have home you know homeowners or families that lose everything and are uninsured or underinsured their credit spirals out of control uh, after that. It is very hard to overcome that. And, um, you know, I don't know what all the answers are uh, when it comes to the insurance industries and what it takes to keep them there. But I do think that, you know, there has got to be some serious sit down meetings between FEMA, Congress, the insurance industry, code officials, land use planning officials to say, what is the right balance here as we're facing new extremes? Great conversation, Brock Long. Great insights, and I thank you for them. Now at Haggerty Consulting, he's the former administrator of FEMA. In a conversation you'll only hear on Bloomberg Radio. Thanks for listening to the Sound On Podcast. Make sure to subscribe if you haven't already at Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. 
And you can find us live every weekday from Washington, D.C. at 1 p.m. Eastern Time at Bloomberg.com. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and, not uh, as simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. Listen to The Deal wherever you get your podcast, And watch on Bloomberg Originals, Bloomberg Television, or BTV+. Brought to you by Sherm, a better workplace, a better world.